Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, your twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer, and we are talking about the latest loss by the Red Wings, 5-1 to one to the Pittsburgh Penguins Sunday afternoon. It was an NBC game. The world got to see the Red Wings uh, lose a game that was basically over 10 minutes into the second period. Yeah, I think at this point people are continuing to wonder why the Detroit Red Wings have national television games and why we're basically... You know, when, with NBC trying to grow the game, why are you, why are you putting the Detroit Red Wings on national TV? But they continue to do it. We get to continue to watch. And, and this was a very different result than last weekend against Boston. Uh, I think Detroit was competitive early on. I actually thought Andreas Athanasiu had probably his best game of the season. Uh, he generated a lot of great chances. The Wings actually scored first, which was exciting. And then all of a sudden, the big bad Pittsburgh Penguins decided they were going to take over this game, and and Sidney Crosby in particular had an outstanding give and go uh, to put the Penguins up. I think that was the four one or five one goal. I can't really remember at this point, but either way, it, it quickly got out of hand, uh, and the Wings really had no chance. Yeah, they didn't, and, and you know I think that uh, by now this is basically what the rest of the season comes down to is are they going to let it go this way or are they going to be able to hang around and, and play some of those you know three two four three two one games that uh when they've played well that they've been able to to play and, and i if it's like this it's going to be a miserable last six weeks for pretty much everybody involved i mean I, by this point the players know they're not making the playoffs they've known that for three months of course but mathematically it's very close to being uh an absolute certainty and at this point, you're looking to see if this team is going to check out, if they're going to hang on, if they're going to... They've got some guys who could have career seasons if they're able to really keep on the gas, but it's it's harder and harder to do the longer this goes. Yeah, it's at this point, you know, and really by what I'm saying this point, I'm talking about since about a month into the season, all you're looking for is just, one, are they staying competitive, and two, are you seeing marginal steps forward from the guys that you believe uh, are going to be a part of the future? And again, like I said... I thought the game against Pittsburgh was Athanasiu's best game of the season. I thought he was really noticeable, drove a lot of the Red Wings' offensive chances, was a big factor in, in the Red Wings' lone goal. He's the one who made the rush up the ice, was able to get the puck into the offensive zone, uh, and then Tyler Bertuzzi and, and Philpola executed a nice give-and-go to get the actual goal for the Wings. But beyond that, I thought he had a great game, and really most of the Wings' big guns, if you will, uh, looked decent um, from a 5-on-5 expected goals for per- perspective and a 5-on-5 kind of overall shots perspective. I think where the Wings really got beat was when Pittsburgh was able to get those matchups against uh, the Abdulkader line and the Wings kind of bottom six, and they really took advantage and put a handful of goals on those guys. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, even playing even for the Wings' top six is simply not enough for them to stay competitive that top six really has to be dominant on the score sheet. Um, and so even though we can take a moral victory that they looked good um, from an amount of chances and a quality of chances with nothing going into the back of the net, that's simply not enough. Yeah, and you know, early in the season when they were having a little more success, we're talking very early now, just the first couple of weeks, the way they were doing it is they would have such a resounding victory by the top line that they were basically able to survive 
the rest of the the game, the rest of the 40 minutes, essentially, that the top line wasn't on the ice. Uh, we're seeing pretty much at this point that they're not going to be able to uh, to sustain that. I mean, the, the top line isn't quite the same as it was at that time. Today it was Larkin, uh, Manta, and, and Fabry instead of Bertuzzi, but um, we'll see how, how it continues to shake out. But this is basically the the reality for this team right now, and it didn't get any easier when Philip Peronik took a puck to look like the side of the head maybe uh, did not return. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming we'll talk about it a little bit more. A really scary incident where he takes a slap shot off the, looks like the right side of the head. Went down immediately. I think kudos to Crosby for immediately stopping play, flagging the ref, flagging the trainers, um, to get people over to him. Ronick was able to get back up and, and ultimately skate his, you know, off the ice under his own power. But when you take out the guy who's really been crunching minutes for you, Philip Ronick only played about nine minutes on the day. Uh, really put a lot of pressure on the Red Wings defense. In fact, a few seconds after the Philip Ronick injury is when Pittsburgh scored their very next goal. And, and so ultimately the Wings really could not defend in their own zone. They actually relied heavily on Madison Bowie, who I thought had one of his better games on the season. He actually led the Red Wings in ice time playing more than 24 minutes on the night, which was a solid two and a half minutes more than the next closest player. So, you know, he had a really big game, but ultimately when you're trying to squeeze 20 minutes out of Alex Viega, 24 minutes out of Bowie, you know, 22 minutes out of Mike Green, who's been in and out of the lineup injured, it's just not going to be a, a scenario that goes well for you. And so, you know, the Wings are already shorthanded on talent, you know, losing their best defenseman early on uh, creates more and more problems for them. Yeah, let's talk about Hronik now while we're on it. I mean, what, what do you see as kind of the the potential ripples of this? I think the first and foremost, you have to hope that he doesn't have a concussion anytime you take a puck in the head. And that was a one-timer slap shot that certainly looked like it was moving quickly. Uh, and that caught him right on the side of the head. Yes, he had his helmet on. Um, as far as you could tell on the video clips, there wasn't any blood or anything. But the concern is, first and foremost, does he have a concussion, making sure that he's okay. And if I'm the Red Wings, you are certainly playing this on the safe side. He's a guy that... You do not need to rush back. There is no reason uh, to try and get him back in. Obviously, he's a warrior. He's a guy that wants to play. Um, but you're going to need to be very smart about how you uh, make these decisions. And even if he's not showing concussion symptoms early on, it may be advisable to hold him out a game or two just to make sure he doesn't have a late presentation of anything. Uh, because in the early time period, having recurrent concussive hits can be exceptionally problematic so I think for him my personal opinion if I was responsible for managing would be to hold him out at least the next game regardless of what shows up from a symptoms perspective just to ensure that he doesn't have any sort of late presentation yeah and this is kind of the 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 big concern right is that yeah, he can be injured. He can miss some games. It, it, it's unfortunate for a young player, but if it's a head injury, uh, you can't really sustain too many of those in this league, right? In, in, in any in any sport, in any profession. So, uh, obviously, that's a human concern first and foremost. Yeah, I mean, you just have to hope that that's not the case here and that he's ultimately fine. But I think Red Wings fans are all too familiar with Johan Franzen's concussion history. Um, and you know how with Franzen coming back so quickly and him taking repeated hits to the head, he ultimately was not even able to be on the ice and, and as a result hasn't been able to play a game in several years now. And so I think with a guy like Philip Ronick and really anybody that has 
any questionable hit to the head. There's absolutely no urgency to bring him back. The season is lost. He's going to be a piece uh, for the future for you. There's no reason to rush him back. Let's make sure that there is no late presentation of symptoms to avoid any sort of repeated and successive um, concussive hits. And, and that way you, you're just playing this really safe and, and making sure his long-term health is still viable and, and intact. Yep, absolutely. All right, moving through the rest of the weekend since the last time we talked. Uh, Red Wings also played a, a game at Boston this weekend. That one went about the same. I think it was 4-1 to one to the Bruins. They actually led 1-0 to zero in that game as well. Uh, that was off a of Darren Helm shorthanded goal, but it familiarly uh, went awry very quickly. I think that one was like four goals in four minutes. Or was that yeah, New Jersey? That was New Jersey. That was New Jersey. So Boston, they scored theirs a little bit more slowly, but they still got their four goals. And and again, it was you you know, you went in hoping after last weekend and, and honestly on the season Detroit's won both their games against Boston by two goals and so Detroit has played the Bruins well, but I think this was again a a real flex from the Bruins. Their skill was really on display. I mean, they really dangled uh, a lot of the Red Wings defensemen all over the ice. It was very clear who the better team was. I thought Boston really controlled play the entire game. Detroit never really mounted anything substantial outside of the Darren Helm goal. And, and as a result, you know, the Wings walk away, giving up nine goals on the weekend. Um, and it kind of shows you how far the gap is between the top of the league and, and where Detroit is right now. I thought this was, these were two games where the Wings got the results. Uh, they ultimately deserved based on their level of play, and and it just really illustrates how much further Detroit has to go to climb back up. So, you know, the Bruins looked really, really good, and fortunately Detroit couldn't keep their five-game winning streak going against them. Right, and that, that certainly comes to an end, ending uh, one of, what, like three positive things Red Wings had going for them this season? Yeah, I mean, it was the, the winning streak against Montreal, the winning streak against uh, against Boston, and then, honestly, Phil, anything Philip Zadina does is, is considered a win. So those were probably my three. So now I've lost one of those off the list. Well, rest in peace. Uh, let's get into the rest of the news then. There was actually a trade this afternoon, not Red Wings related, but one that uh, I wonder, do you think has any Red Wings uh, implications? Andy Green goes to the New York Islanders from the Devils. Uh, Devils get back a second round pick for him. Yeah, 2021 second round pick, and then David Quenville, who I think is uh, more of a salary slash contract piece to to add in here, and not necessarily an instrumental piece moving forward. And so this is a really interesting move because Green is a veteran defenseman, 37 year old guy who's been a big minute cruncher for years for the Devils, a guy that's going to play on the penalty kill, play big defensive minutes, not really going to contribute offensively. And for the Devils to be able to move a 37-year-old defenseman who's, you know, doesn't really move the needle a whole lot in terms of on-ice impact uh, and is really just providing that veteran experience to a team and for the Devils to be able to get back a 2021 second-round pick uh, from the Islanders, a team where, again, year after year, we go, how are they as good as they are? And then they continue to surprise. And so you kind of wonder, uh, does the bottom eventually fall out or surprisingly fall out on them as early as next year? And that 2021 pick is now sitting in the uh, top 40 range. Uh, that's an excellent return. That's an outstanding return. And so I think if you're the Red Wings, 
uh, with defensemen to shop. Guys like Trevor Daly, guys like Mike Green, um, Mike Green being a far more offensively capable defenseman than Andy Green with that similar veteran experience. Uh, you have to be asking yourself, can I get second round picks for Mike Green? Could I get, you know, that fifth round pick, which you and I talked about being anything better than a conditional seventh would be a dream return for Trevor Daly. If someone is that desperate for quote unquote veteran, uh, defensemen, maybe the Red Wings should be uh, a little, be a little more aggressive in shopping those guys. So let me ask you, I'm looking at the Evolving Hockey Goals Above Replacement page right now, and there are two Red Wings defensemen who have stronger defensive impacts uh, as measured by Evolving Hockey on here. That would be Mike Green and Patrick Nemeth. But interestingly, Mike Green's kind of offensive component of the Goals Above Replacement stat, far lower than Andy Green's. How how does, I mean, intuitively that would seem wrong. How would that something like that be calculated? Yeah, I think in this particular case, right, so the way that the evolving hockey model works is the offense is actually based on goals. And so to a certain extent, Detroit having very few goals, being that target variable, uh, they're going to be a little bit more, I guess, influenced, if you will, uh, or penalized in that sense, given that Detroit's just not scoring a lot of offense. And that's the target variable that's attempting to be predicted. The second piece here is the evolving hockey model does not carry forward any prior information. So it does not know that Mike Green is Mike Green at the beginning of the season. This is purely an assessment of how this player has performed this season with no prior knowledge of that player's historical results. So this this, uh, this model doesn't necessarily take into account that Mike Green is a player that is a very good offensive player, and Andy Green is historically a player that's not a very good offensive player. And so I think with that being said, Mike Green still had very poor results on the season. Um, you do wonder if he is in a more friendly environment. Let's say you're looking for a team that's looking for a veteran defenseman that can play on the third line uh, or third pairing. Hypothetically, I'm going to say Carolina just because I can that's an environment where maybe Mike Green's numbers look a lot better because they're going to score a little bit more goals. That target variable looks better. Um, but again, that model in particular is not taking into account his prior stuff. So, you know, we're going to say Mike Green, I'm, I'm not going to say that Mike Green is a less offensively capable defenseman than Andy Green. Um, simply because of, of that, I think it is important to weight some of his historical uh, information into that assessment. So if you were someone who was trying to pitch Mike Green in a trade, your argument then is basically, no, it hasn't been, it hasn't been their form this year offensively, but if you put him in an environment where there's more offensive talent across the board, he, he's still Mike Green. He hasn't forgotten how to make the right, the right seam pass. He hasn't forgotten, uh, you know, how, how to shoot when he needs to shoot the puck. Uh, and, and maybe he's even improved a little bit defensively with, with age and with some wisdom. Yeah, that's certainly how I'm going to sell it. I mean, I think if you're tracking Mike Green's production out over the course of his career, he has substantially dropped off over the last three years. I think really his last strong year uh, offensively, and, and strong is a relative term, but I think his, maybe his last passable year offensively was 2016-2017. So he's really dropped off between 17, 18, 18, 19, 19, 20. I think the point totals kind of lag, and I think what you're going to try and do as a seller is say, look, this is a guy who, you know, used to be in Norris Trophy contention, used to be a 70, 80 point defenseman. It's not like he's forgotten how to do that, but he's been in an environment such as Detroit's where 
everything is just going to look worse. Everything statistically is going to look worse. When you get him out of here, he's maybe a guy that's going to look a little bit better, look a little bit more like that older self, trust in his historical numbers. Now me, as a seller, I am very much playing that up because like I said, for the last three years, Mike Green's offensive impacts have been quite poor. Uh, he hasn't, and he's really not been a, an excellent offensive defenseman in, relative to what he used to be, but you're going to try and play up what he used to look like because at his peak, he was a very good offensive defenseman. Yep. Yep. And that, that's, that's the, the pitch, certainly. Not so certain you're going to find too many teams ultimately, uh, looking to do that, but I would not have, I would not have predicted an Andy Green for a second, uh, even if it's 2021 second deal today either. So. I guess the, the other news item we should get to today that may or may not be relevant to Red Wings fans, I, I would say it has about an 18.5% chance of being relevant to Red Wings fans, is that Alexi Lafreniere has six points through two periods uh, in the QMJHL today. Yeah, so he's uh, really coming back and making a statement here. I mean, he was already at 92 points through 43 games played, and, and now I guess he's up to 98 through 44 games played. So he's just on an absolutely ridiculous pace right now. I think he's really setting himself apart from the rest of the, the rest of the queue and honestly the rest of the other draft eligibles. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder at this point, like, how, uh, how wide is this, is this gap? I mean, there was a time in the middle of the season where we thought maybe it was pretty close between Lafreniere and Byfield. The World Juniors, I think, was kind of a, seemed to be a turning point. At this point, what is the gap? Well, I mean, when we're talking about Lafreniere's uh, points per game right now, let's say it's he's at 98 through 44. That puts you at about 2.23 points per game, or, you know, as we refer to that in the QMJHL, that's one slot ahead of Mike Bossy's draft-eligible year. I mean, I think he was a pretty good player. You're honestly not far off from Crosby, although Crosby was up at 2.7, so he had him by about half a point per game. We're really talking about just an elite talent and and while Byfield has kind of slowed down a little bit Stutzel has slowed down a little bit uh, Raymond hasn't actually put up as many points the guys that have still been climbing to a certain extent are Marco Rossi and and uh and, and Cole Perfetti over in the OHL I think what you're kind of seeing is maybe Byfield and Stutzel Raymond kind of coming back to the cluster of the Rossi the Perfetti the Drysdale that group while you're simultaneously having Lafreniere widening, widening that gap. So I really think the gap between one and two is now growing larger than the gap between potentially two and five. You know, uh, I actually even missed a secondary assist there late in the second period. So he's up to seven points now, uh, 99 on the year through 43 and two-thirds games. Uh, so pretty pretty incredible. I, I So as you talk about kind of the, the cluster there, the, the guy who I'm most curious about with, with how you think the Red Wings should approach him, let's say that they fall to four, is Jamie Drysdale, a guy who, you know, looked pretty good at the World Juniors, but plays a position at a right-handed defenseman who, uh, where the Red Wings are not, you know, if you go by handedness, necessarily as strapped as some of the other ones. How much would you weigh something like that in in-draft decision? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And this, a lot of the times this comes down to, so you're sitting at four and is this a, a draft for need or a draft for best player available? And so if you're approaching that board, and while Detroit does have a handful of right-handed defensemen, if you're getting there at four and Drysdale is the best player on your board, the number one thing Detroit needs at this point in time is talent. And so if you think he's the most talented player available, you take the most talented player available. I think what we've really learned over the years of analyzing the draft is that not enough of these prospects pan out with any regularity 
such that you could say, I am truly drafting for need, because if that player doesn't pan out in that need position, not only do you not have a more talented player that you may have passed on, but you also don't have that player uh, for that position in need. And so that's where I think you want to give yourself the best opportunity for the player to pan out. And so as you're developing your draft board and you're, and you're making that list, if you've decided that this player is your best player available and he's there at four, you take him. Um, my personal opinion is I don't believe that Drysdale will be the best player available at four. I think there are a handful of, of other players who are going to be there at four that would be a better position or a better player for the wings to, to truly take. Um, all that being said, you know, Moritz Sider was the wings BPA on the board at six based on what we've been told. And they went and took him and look at how he's developed. And so that's where I think if you truly believe Drysdale's that best player available, you take him at four. Yep. And I, I think that's ultimately where I'm at too, is that the Red Wings are not nearly, uh, Number one, your your point I think is is a good one about not being able to necessarily project what your needs are. But I also think Red Wings are a team with varied enough needs that ultimately, if if your issue is you got two good right-handed defensemen already, well, number one, you can always move one to the left side, and number two, uh, you can always trade one if, if if that's the way that the uh, the wins move and you end up with three really good potential top pair right-handed defensemen. Uh, I have a feeling there may be a market for that at some point. Yeah, you know. I, and you look at teams that have done this really well. You look at teams like Carolina. You look at teams like uh, Nashville that have been able to move uh, those types of players when they draft a lot of guys, like Nashville in particular, draft a lot of defensemen, was able to move Sam Gerrard out to actually bring Matt Duchesne there, and they were able to have a really successful playoff run. Carolina's been able to move out you know, a guy like Noah Hannafin, and in return they were able to bring back Dougie Hamilton uh, as a part of that deal. And so... I think if you look at teams, it's fine if you're stocked at a position. That's actually great. Uh, there's really no reason to, to avoid it. Because I think, one, when we talk about drafting for need, oftentimes what people are doing is they're assessing the need today and saying, this is something I need. But when you're talking about most of these prospects, even a first-round player, uh, you're often thinking it's two to three years before that player is truly on your NHL roster. So are you truly assessing your need three years from now? Because you don't know what you're going to do in free agent. You don't know if one of your other guys is going to make a leap. Uh, or are you really just projecting your need from today onto this player that you're going to draft who won't impact your roster for three years from now? So that's why I think it's, again, just vitally important to take the best players available. And if they all pan out, well, that's a great problem to have. All right, we're going to have a little bit of a shorter show today. So if it's good with you, I think we're ready to move on to some of the listener questions. Yeah, let's do it. All right, first one is from Peter, who asks, is there any reason to hold on to Jonathan Bernier at this point? This is this is the million-dollar question. I mean, you and I have, have really talked about it, and, and I think it all depends of as to whether or not you're, re- you're ready and willing to go into uh, free agency knowing you need two goaltenders. Because I think uh, it's pretty clear that Jimmy Howard uh is either approaching retirement or should not be back next year if he wants to continue playing simply because uh his level is just not where it needs to be and it doesn't appear to be injury related it's just very very uh it's kind of disappointing that it's unfortunately coming this way but if you move bernier you're telling yourself right now that i need two goaltenders because we know that philip larson's not ready we know that none of the other Red Wings goalie prospects, Keith Petrozelli and whatnot, they're not ready either. 
Um, and so you can certainly approach it by saying, I'm going to take two goaltenders in, in free agency. But again, that means you're committing a lot of money over to those guys. And, and you have Bernier at a relatively team-friendly deal. So that's why I think if you move him, we have to kind of reflect back to what you and I said um, in that if if he moves, you need a big big return for him and for us I think we both said at least a second round pick if not a second and a third um, to try and move Jonathan Bernier and I think that return is not out of the question given what Toronto paid for Jack Campbell who's while a little bit younger and a little bit cheaper also not as good right and you know I think you know at the root of the question is there a reason to hold on to him yeah he's been one of the better goalies in the NHL and he's still under contract for a year at, at a position the Red Wings have no uh, clear succession plan so the reason to hold on to him is he could be your starting goalie next year and, and potentially do it at a high level. Now, the flip side is goalies can sometimes be unpredictable, and you never know if, if a guy's going to repeat, you know, one season over the next. And um, that's that's kind of the question. But, you know, I almost think, like, the the, the reason to – the default should be holding on to him at this point unless somebody come to, comes in and, and knocks your socks off. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And just, that's just because, again, goaltenders that are successful and cheap are not easy to come by, and so if you're going to move one that is that, uh, which has been Bernier this year, like we've talked about, he's been in the top five in the NHL in most uh, metrics over the last two, three months. So, you know, if you're going to move him, you need a big, big return, and I just don't, I just don't see it. Yep. All right, another one from another Peter asks: uh, Is there reason for Abdulkader to be on the team next year other than the optics of the contract? And two. Shouldn't the rest of this season be about getting Svechnikov and Sider looks and Perlini higher leverage ice time so you know you have what value is trotting out some of the bottom lineup guys? Um, I'll start on this one. I mean, to number two, the rest of the year should be about whatever is best for those guys, but that does not necessarily mean being in the NHL. Like, it, you could make the argument that what's best for them is some consistency and, and playing at the AHL level to a high degree. I mean, Sechnikov's on a goal streak, but he also was scratched last night, and we, we presume uh, – I haven't been down to Grand Rapids or been able to talk to anyone from Grand Rapids yet to hear why, but he's coming off like a, a, a pretty rough injury, and the rehab process there is always extensive. So you're looking out for his best interest, whatever that may be. Uh, in, in Sider's case, like I think Sider should probably get a look here in the, at the NHL level uh, sometime in the next six weeks, but – should the rest of the year be about him being in the NHL? Not necessarily. I think, you know, there's there's multiple considerations there. You want to test him against high level, but he's also, you know, he's been quite good in, in Grand Rapids, and yet he's not done all he can do there either. So um, you probably want him around a winning room to some degree, which is what they're, they've been doing there in Grand Rapids. They've really caught fire since having a tougher time uh, in the middle of the season, that's suddenly a room that's kind of seems like it's galvanized and they're having a lot of success, a lot of it driven by some of these young guys. Michael Rasmussen, Giovanni Smith connected on a really nice play the other day. Uh, Joe Valeno has really hit his stride and obviously Cider, one of their anchors back there. So to that part of the question, you know, yes and no. Yes, it should be about uh, getting them looks insofar as they are ready for it, but you're not going to rush them. You're not going to say, as the Red Wings, I just want to look at these guys, so I'm going to pluck them out of their environment because that's not always the right move. Now, to the part about Ablocator, other than the optics of the contract, um, it, it's all relative, right? I mean, he's been scratched at times this season, and he has been in the lineup at times this season. And when he's in the lineup, they like him because he tries hard, and, and he, he kind of has the habits they want to embody. Um, when he's not in the lineup, that means they have another another preference that they want to trot out there. Sometimes that's related to... 
I'm sure, uh, matchup. And sometimes, you know, everyone knows what, where Abdulkader's game has been at for the last year or so here. So, uh, is there a reason? There very well could be. I mean, the, the contract is not just optics, right? It's a very, uh, real thing with regard to the cap. And if you were to, uh, just kind of let it sit somewhere, that doesn't necessarily help you either. Yeah, I completely agree. I think with Abdulkader, you're in a tricky situation. He's under contract for three more years after this year. A buyout, if you were to try and buy him out this at the uh, in June and during the buyout window, you're talking about getting savings over the next three years, but then tagging yourself with a million-dollar cap hit um, for the three years after that, so that being 2023, 2024, all the way through 2025, 2026. So, you know, I don't know that you necessarily want to tag yourself with a million-dollar cap hit in three years when you're potentially thinking about being a contending team and you don't want to have those buyout deals on your contract so could they buy him out sure would it be super expensive no but again buying him out at this point in time I'm not sure is the the right answer I mean again Eiserman has no qualms about buying out players when he feels that's the right move for the organization when he was with Tampa Bay he bought out Vincent LeCavier and that massive deal because that was the right move for Tampa in his mind and and that was doing it to a franchise player so it's not like that's going to scare him. It's just if if it's the right move or not. I think Svechnikov, as good as he's been, he's been on that goal streak. You know, he sat out the last game because of knee soreness per, you know, a couple of people who were close to the Griffins and mentioned that they think he was held out due to, grease, uh, to knee soreness. And so, again, is he ready to, to play every single day? I don't know that that's the answer. We'll see. Uh, the Griffins are rolling right now. It's, it's going to be a little interesting if they... Uh, want to mess that up or not. Again, my personal opinion is that the Red Wings matter more than anything that happens in Grand Rapids, um, but we'll see what the organization kind of feels like. And, you know, this is kind of a, a variation on the theme of, of a lot of criticisms and questions that come up throughout rebuilds almost all the time, right? Like, why is X player who is either, you know, older or declining or just generally not playing well getting ice time when prospect X is down in Grand Rapids, like, a, you know, why is he not up right and i i just want to say i get that like i really do it's, it's these things are are long and arduous and painful for fans to watch um but you can't let that kind of blind you to, to the fact that you know the development realities are still what they are just because the team is not playing well just because the team you know is, is trotting out guys who are not going to be around the next time that they are a contender um, that doesn't mean you can really just press fast forward and, and make it so that the, the young players are up. Like the development timeline does not happen in a vacuum where where you can be getting uh, guys to where they need to be just by accelerating the level that they're at. Yeah, exactly. Now you also don't want to go too far the other way and, and restrict guys back when they're ready. So so it definitely cuts both ways. But it's just uh, it's one of the themes that will continue to recur, and I'm sure not the last time. We will get that question on this show. Uh, the next one's from our buddy Nick Lubert, who says, uh, can you guys analyze what makes Tyler Bertuzzi so effective? He sometimes can look slow or choppy, but he makes plays like the give and go with Valtteri Filippola on the goal today uh, and has the ability to drive lines to some degree. Why and how does that happen? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think when you pick up on these players like Bertuzzi, where you're like, they're not necessarily super fast. They're um, not necessarily blowing you away with their skill. You know, another guy that he honestly reminds me of to a certain extent, although um, not necessarily in the same tier, is Henrik Zetterberg. Zetterberg was a very choppy skater. He was never an excellent skater. He was never the fastest guy on the ice. But 
one of the things he always did was, one, he was excellent in puck protection. He was able to use his backside exceptionally well um, to protect the puck. And I think Tyler Bertuzzi does a really good job protecting the puck. But two, he always knew where guys were going to be. Um, so, for example, on that play with the give-and-go with uh, Philpola, uh, I was watching that play and I'm going, what, what is he doing? His body position is effectively not in shooting position. He is facing the boards as Philpola is passing him that puck. Like, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But he knows that Philpola is going to make that give-and-go, and that's a play that he's thinking about and that's a play he's almost seeing, and he puts the puck right, uh, right in a tight space where really only Philpola can get to it, and Philpola is able to get a wide open net. And so I think Bertuzzi is very, very positionally sound. He's very good protecting the puck, and he has a really high awareness for, uh, where people are and where they will be. And so I think being able to think the game, you know, two or three steps ahead is what sets him apart. And when he's playing with those high-skill line mates who are thinking the game the same way, that really comes out. When he's not playing with those high-skill line mates, you don't necessarily see it as much because he's a little bit more reliant on those guys to be on the same wavelength as him. And that's why I think you've seen him flourish so much with uh, Dylan Larkin and with Valtteri Filppula and with Anthony Mantha because these are guys that think on that level, that know what he's doing, and he knows where to be. And as a result, it makes for a really harmonious kind of uh, puck movement, if you will. Yeah, I remember this. from I, I reported a story last year on how kind of the, the scouting process for the Red Wings um, went when they were drafting Tyler Bertuzzi. And I, I remember one of the kind of questions at that time was – about his skating, and I think it's a common one. It stands out on the ice. But one of the things that his junior coach kind of said was about. Uh, let me let me find the quote real quick here. Okay, so so it's again Scott Walker coached him in, in junior, and he said, you know, I know a lot of guys are uh, that are fast that are slow in traffic and slow with the puck. Bertuzzi's fast or faster than anybody in traffic and with the puck in the danger zone. He's fast. He's not scared at all. He's going in there. He's got lots of skill and tight and around the net, head down, beating guys, shooting, going hard to all the areas to score. That to me is is the answer. Is that you know I don't know if you can actually kind of quantify that as, as he's actually like fast with the puck, but I think it basically means he doesn't slow down as a result of having the puck. Now sometimes that's because. A guy is not shy of contact. I think that could probably be true of Bertuzzi. Sometimes it's just a, it's just a, kind of an instinctive thing that they're just going, going, going. They don't have to think too much. And, um, you know, he, he's someone who he's able to, to put a shot on net. He's able to follow it. He's able to kind of put a body on somebody. And importantly, he's able to win a puck battle and come out of it with the puck. To me, that's the trait of his that I'm always the most impressed by is when he goes into a corner and is able to come out of it with, with clean possession. I mean, I, I think those are the things that allow him to, uh, to drive play a little bit. Uh, so to me, those are the, the skills that Bertuzzi has. You know, the Blashell's comment that he he has said many times is that there's not a lot of guys who are that hard, that tough, uh, and also that smart. And I think that holds up. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yep. All right. Uh, moving on forward, Jeremy asks, when will Jimmy Howard get his next win? We can pull the schedule up there. Is there, I mean, we're not going to know necessarily uh, which games he and Jonathan Bernier uh, are starting, but sometimes if you can go and find a back-to-back, you can guess that each guy's going to play one of those games. So I will pose the question to you. When will Jimmy Howard get his next win? I mean, that's it's a really tough question because, so a couple episodes back, you know, I challenged you and I said, Max, I'm going to set the over-under for Jimmy Howard wins the rest of the way at one and a half. And while we are halfway through February and, and Howard has not picked up one, 
There is only one back-to-back left the rest of the way, I believe, and that's in March. Um, and that'll be March 20th at Arizona and then March 21st at Vegas. Presuming Howard gets either of those, that's not an easy opponent. Both those teams are in playoff position. So you don't know that you can necessarily pencil in those. And, and given that Detroit's only won a handful of road games on the year, I'm going to really knock the chances down there. I think Howard gets more starts than that uh, the rest of the way. I think he'll probably get a chance. Um, hopefully he gets a chance um, next, uh, I should say, Saturday the 29th at Ottawa. I think that would be an ideal opportunity to give him a chance at a win. Beyond that, I'm not sure that I see a win the rest of the way because as we talked about in March, the Red Wings schedule is absolutely brutal uh, with Colorado, Chicago, Tampa, Carolina, Washington, Tampa, Florida, Arizona, Vegas, Boston, Philly, Washington, St. Louis. There's just there, there's a chance the team doesn't win there. Uh, so I think maybe at Ottawa on the 29th if he gets that start, but if not, I don't see a win the rest of the way. I got one for you. April 4th. Home against Tampa Bay this season. You think they're resting people? That's my prediction. That's fair enough. I mean, maybe Tampa rests people, but my suspicion is Tampa and Boston are still going to be neck and neck for who gets that first overall. And I think that's still going to be a game that means something. Even if it is, I'm I'm just saying it'd be it'd be a perfect way for this season to end (laughs) with how it's gone. Of them, well, the winner of the best team in the league at home, exactly. All right, and that so that'll do it for the listener questions for today. Uh, Red Wings have a couple more games this week. They're going to go uh, first. They're going to come home and play the Canadiens. So that'll go in for the season sweep uh, against Montreal, and then uh, they'll go to the Islanders play play there, and then uh, see uh, Andy Green, of course, new, newly acquired Andy Green, and uh, then they'll come home and play Calgary, and that'll be the last game before the trade deadline. So. Sure, there'll be a lot to talk about in that span. What's your prediction for? Uh, we'll only record, you know, we'll record again in the middle of the week, right before, uh, right before the Islanders game. But uh, what are you? What are your thoughts on how they'll fare this week? Well, you know, they blew the streak against Boston, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna just have to assume they blew the streak against Montreal on Tuesday. So, zero uh, and two. All right, I will, uh, I will second that. Uh, All right, guys, thanks as always for joining us. We will talk to you again in the middle of the week. And uh, set your notifications for Pierre Lebrun because uh, who knows? You never know when when something could go down, especially with Steve Eisenman.